Hello everyone, and welcome to the June 10th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our fraud report. 45-year-old Roberto Carlos Mendoza Lazo of San Bernardino has been charged with identity theft and attempted perjury. The San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office Workers' Compensation Fraud Unit began a criminal investigation into alleged workers' compensation fraud committed by Mendoza Lazo in January. It was discovered that Mendoza Lazo used the social security number of two individuals to obtain employment. He also attempted to obtain workers' compensation benefits using the same social security numbers. Investigators located Mendoza Lazo at his place of employment in San Bernardino County, where he was arrested and transported and booked into the San Bernardino County Sheriff Department, Central Detention Central Jail. Mendoza Lazo was arraigned on May 31st and pleaded not guilty to all counts. Deputy District Attorney Scott Byrd will prosecute this case, and if convicted as charged, Mendoza Lazo faces four years, two months in county prison. An Inspector General report says that Medicare is overwhelmed by new medical provider information and unable to police its existing provider databases against the fraudulent use of taxpayer money. Government investigators found that the data systems used to catalog the records of Medicare providers were riddled with inaccurate or incomplete information. 97% of files studied have inconsistent information. The Inspector General report focused on two Medicare databases that manage important provider information. Authorities found Medicare's databases to be inaccurate, opening the door for potential waste, fraud, and abuse. The systems contain the information and identifiers of healthcare providers and assist the government healthcare system in processing payments to those providers. The IG report also found that CMS did not verify most of the information in either database, raising the possibility that there may be fraudulent information in the system. Faced with surging provider applications to fill the increased role of Medicare, CMS allowed for the suspension of other verification processes that may have caught inaccurate data. The IG report recommended stronger oversight and safeguards after noting that three out of four providers identified inaccurate data in either system. And in regulatory news, the DWC has modified the proposed Qualified Medical Evaluator regulations. They have also electronically distributed the 15-day notice of these modifications to interested parties and has posted the modified regulation text and forms on the DWC website. Section 13 is revised to require all requests by QMEs to be added or removed from the specialty area to be in writing and include documentation that establishes the physician is board certified in the specialty. Section 26 is revised to clarify that QMEs may continue to request additional office locations up to the 10 office location limit. Section 30 is revised to state that an issued panel may be revoked by the medical unit if the panel was issued by mistake, misrepresentation of facts, or the parties have agreed to resolve their dispute using an agreed medical examiner. Section 35 is revised to allow the claims administrator or injured worker to 
provide a letter to the QME or AME outlining the medical determination of the primary treating physician or the compensability issue that the evaluator is requested to address. And Section 35.5 is revised to state that if the evaluator declares the injured worker permanent and stationary for the body part evaluated and the evaluator finds injury has caused permanent partial disability, the evaluator shall complete the physician's report or permanent and stationary status and work capacity and serve it on the claims administrator and the employee together with the medical report. The notice, text of the regulations and forms can be found on the DWC website. And a second 15-day notice of modification to the Supplemental Job Displacement Benefit Regulations has been distributed to interested parties and posted on the DWC website, of course. The physician's return to work and voucher report is modified to clarify the descriptors for the activity restrictions and to reflect that any job descriptions provided to the physician would discuss physical requirements rather than activity restrictions. Appropriate sections have been modified to include the 60-day time frame for making an offer to, to return to work. The notice, text of the regulations and forms can be found on the proposed regulations page. And in medical news, a new Oxycontin formulation is providing relief for workers' compensation payers strapped with paying for the illegal diversion of the prescription pain reliever. The abuse deterrent Oxycontin formulation was introduced in 2010 and contains polymers that make it harder to crush for snorting or melt for injecting. But a new study in the New England Journal of Medicine found that abusers preferred to shift from the reformulated Oxycontin to heroin and other high-potency opiates. The study relied on surveys completed by nearly 3,000 people entering treatment programs because of opiate dependency. Before the release of the abuse deterrent formula, 35.6% favored OxyContin as their primary drug. That dropped to 12.8% just 21 months later, after introduction of the new OxyContin formulation. Heroin used nearly double during that time and was the most used alternative according to the survey. Meanwhile, pharmacy benefit managers said in their workers' compensation drug trend reports released in April that opiate prescribing dropped during 2012. This is good news for the workers' comp industry, but the authors of the New England Journal of Medicine study concluded that the new formula reduced the abuse of one drug, but replaced it with a drug that may pose a much greater overall risk to public health. The DWC 2013 study on access to medical care for injured workers finds that most workers have nearby access to providers and are satisfied with the medical care they receive. The Labor Code requires that DWC complete annual studies to ensure workers have access to medical care. DWC Acting Administrative Director Desti Overpeck said she was pleased to see that the majority of injured workers have access to needed care without barriers. However, she added that improvements are needed to increase rates of recovery and job modifications. This study marks DWC's first effort to review medical claims data in order to gauge injured workers' access issues. Previous studies focused solely on survey data, although survey methods differed. 
The findings for each survey were similar. Among the 500 randomly selected workers, 84% expressed satisfaction with their main healthcare provider, and 85% of those who saw specialists were satisfied with the care they received. 7% of workers reported that they were denied care. 85% of injured workers saw a healthcare provider within three days of their injury. The distance traveled to the first provider visit was most frequently less than six miles and took less than 16 minutes. Injured workers reported receiving care through a medical provider network 85% of the time. Air ambulance vendors have prevailed in workers' compensation litigation, allowing them to exempt from state-adopted maximum fee schedules. Courts have found that federal law regulating air carriers preempts state law. The cost of an air ambulance, ambulance transport for injured worker is therefore uncontrolled and unfettered. However, there may remain legal challenges to these fees based upon medical necessity. Researchers at the Stanford University School of Medicine have for the first time determined how often emergency medical helicopters are actually needed. The study comes at a time when finding ways to cut medical costs has become a national priority, and the overuse of helicopter transport has come under scrutiny. Previous studies have shown that on average, over half of patients transported by helicopter have only minor, non-life-threatening injuries. For these patients, transport by helicopter instead of ground ambulance is not likely to make a difference in outcome and the additional risk and cost of helicopter transport outweighs the benefit. In 2010, there were an estimated 44,700 U.S. helicopter transports from injury scenes to level one and level two trauma centers with an average cost of about $6,500 per transport. The total annual national cost is around $290 million. Yet, emergency helicopter transport sits in a cost efficiency conundrum. It is most needed in remote rural areas where transport by ground can take far longer than by air. These areas also tend to have sparse populations and therefore fewer calls for aid, making it difficult to recoup the overhead costs of maintaining helicopter services, Delgado said. In some areas of the country, helicopters are automatically launched based on the 911 call. And there is mixed evidence in the literature about the degree to which helicopter transport reduces mortality. It is therefore uncertain whether the routine use of helicopter transport is cost-effective for most patients in the United States when ground transport is also feasible. The study found that the cost-effectiveness also depends on regional variation in the costs of air and ground transport and the percentage of patients who are flown that have minor injuries. And in financial news, California state average weekly wage rose less than 1% from $1,059.38 to $1,067.25 in the 12 months ending March 31st, 2013. This will boost temporary total disability rates for 2014 work injury claims, as well as other workers' compensation benefits that are tied to changes in the state average weekly wage. California's TTD maximum rate will rise to $1,074.64 per week for claims with injury dates after January 1st. The minimum rate will edge up a fraction $161.19 for dates 
of claims with 2014 dates of injury. Beginning next January, other workers' compensation benefits also will be bumped up, including TTD paid two years or more after the injury, life pension and permanent total disability payments, and installment payments on death claims. Underpayment of benefits results in penalties, so claims administrators are encouraged to review changes in benefit rates with legal counsel to assure adjustments are appropriate and accurate. And in other news, Chairwoman Ronnie Complain of the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board announced that WCJ Chris Kondak has been appointed to the position of WCAB Deputy Commissioner. Judge Kondak will supervise the Appeals Board, staff attorneys, train and mentor new attorneys, and act as counsel to the commissioners when necessary. She will also participate in drafting regulation and bank in significant panel decisions as well as participate as a panelist on cases as necessary. Judge Kondak has been a workers' compensation administrative law judge in Santa Rosa and Oakland since 1998. Prior to that, she was a partner at Hannah Brophy, McLean, McClare, and Jensen in Oakland where she began her career in workers' compensation in 1981. Judge Kondak received her JD from UC Hastings College of Law in 1975 and her BA from Stanford University in 1971. Chairwoman Gaplin said that Judge Kondak is a highly respected workers' compensation administrative law judge for her legal acumen, knowledge, even-handedness, and well-reasoned decisions. She brings a wealth of experience and a good sense of humor to the appeals board. Judge Kondak will start her new duties on July 1st. Raina David has been named the Chief Operations and Chief Financial Officer of the California Workers' Compensation Institute. Ms. David Jones, CWCI, after having served as consult consultant and manager with more than 25 years of experience in finance, data systems development, product development, workers' compensation and group health pricing, health services research, and hospital operations. The majority of her experience has been at Kaiser Permanente. In the mid-1990s, she was project lead for the implementation of Kaiser's 24-hour care product, combining group health and workers' compensation, medical care in Sacramento, and in San Diego. She also played a key role in developing and evaluating the performance of the Kaiser Permanente State Fund Alliance Initiative. From 2006 to 2008, she managed the California Healthcare Foundation's initiative, which included consulting on the development of a 24-hour coverage carve-out model. She's a graduate of Stanford University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in human biology. Ms. David also holds master's degrees in business administration and public health from UC Berkeley. Her new position, she'll be responsible for CWCI's accounting and budgeting functions, oversee the Institute's general administration, human resources, facilities and systems, and provide support and expertise to the research department on designated research projects. CWCI President Alex Swedlow said she's a great addition to the CWCI professional team, and her technical qualifications and familiarity with key industry issues will provide CWCI with thoughtful leadership and expertise. Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts 
and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And drop by again next week for more news.